From the highest mountains to the bluest seas, the driest deserts to the icy poles, Kate Turkington has traveled there. And now she's inviting you to travel with her through your radio. Travels with Kate is proudly brought to you with the compliments of Cape Union Mart. Kindle your spirit of adventure. The adventure starts here, only on 101.9 High FM. 101.9 High FM, I'm Kate Turkington. Good afternoon, a very, very good afternoon to you. Travels with Kate, yes, we're going to be traveling domestically, we're going to be doing a bit of travel overseas, and then we're going to be talking about a remarkable new book that's just hit our bookshelves by Eve Fairbanks called The Inheritors. And remember, you can get hold of me at kate.hi.co.za and as I always remind you for people who aren't Jewish hi is C-H-A-I so you can get me at kate.hi.co.za you can find the podcast on the Hi website which is com. and for photographs of some of the places I talk about you can always go to my website and go to some of the back entries. That's Kate at kateturkington.com. So there you are. And last week, you may remember, I was talking about some of our 19 national parks. I mean, and I forgot to look up. I think we're among one of the countries in the world that has the highest number of national parks, 19 of them. And I did tell you that there were a couple I hadn't been to that I wanted to talk. Well, one I'd been to, one I hadn't. But one I hadn't been to and wanted to find out about is Makala National Park. It's the newest national park. Where is it, you may wonder, by the way, it's spelt M-O-K-A-L-A. Once an English teacher, always an English teacher. So Makala National Park. It's a lovely stopover, actually, en route, if you're going by road from Johannesburg to uh, Cape Town. And the name Makala means camel thorn. That's a tree vital to humans and wildlife, as you probably know. So it's about 70 k's southwest, a bit south-southwest of Kimberley. It's just off that N12 freeway to Cape Town. So if you were driving up to Johannesburg or driving from Johannesburg to Cape Town, a really, really nice place to stay with lovely accommodation because it's a, a new national park. There are three lodges ranging from rustic to luxurious, so really prices to suit all pockets. And there's very, very good wedding and conference uh, facilities. Quite got a different, unusual place to come together for a conference or a bosporat, uh, I suppose. And what can you do there? Oh, lots and lots of stuff. Uh, by the way, animals, there's wildlife uh, of all kind, lots of endangered species. There's roan, there's sable, rhino, sesame. What do you know about the sesame? I always say to my grandchildren, it's the fastest antelope in South Africa. When you look at it, it's got such a miserable face, a sesame. What Alfred Tennyson would have called a lugubrious face. 
the goobies, they always look so miserable. You can see them in the Peelandsburg too. So lots and lots of uh, wildlife, lots of birds too. So you can go stargazing, you can go mountain biking, you can do, and I'd really recommend this, one of my daughters has been there and recommends it thoroughly, you can do a guided day walk or a sunset drive. And you don't, unlike Medique, for example, where you can't have day visitors, they really um, enjoy day visitors and there are great um, facilities for day visitors. There's a lovely picnic site with ablutions, etc. There's also a lovely bird hide. So that's Makala National Park, as I say, just south-southwest of Kimberley, really worth thinking about as maybe not as your final destination, but certainly if you're driving en route to or from Cape Town and Johannesburg. From the highest mountains to the bluest seas, the driest deserts to the icy poles, Kate Turkington has traveled there. And now she's inviting you to travel with her through your radio. Travels with Kate is proudly brought to you with the compliments of Cape Union Mart. Kindle your spirit of adventure. The adventure starts here, only on 101.9 High FM. 101.9 High FM, it's Kate Turkington. And I was telling you there about Makala National Park, which is one of our newest, but one reasonably new and one all of us should go to from South Africa, says she generalizing, which she always does, is Mapungubwe National Park. Mapungubwe National Park. Nearest town is Messina, so it's situated right up there against the Botswana border. It's about, it's just over 500 k's from Johannesburg. Oh, and I don't know, six, six and a half hours driving, maybe. But really, you go there, and you go there as a destination. You go to stay there two or three nights. And like with all national parks, book, book, book ahead as far as you can. And here's a little tip for you. Obviously, you can try going through sandparks.org, but sometimes it's a very good idea to ring the camp directly. Let's say you suddenly found you had a weekend free. Sometimes it's a good tip. Ring the phone, call the camp, the lodge, the game park personally, and sometimes you get in. I've got into Kruger Park like that several times just by, let's say, phoning Cinquetsi on a, on a Thursday and suddenly they've had a cancellation before the main switchboard in Pretoria has been able to catch up with it. Okay, so Map and Goodway. Why is it worth a visit? Well, obviously wildlife. You've got elephant, you've got rhino, you've got wild dog, you've got brown hyena, you've got, if you're a birder, Pell's fishing owl, which, if you are a birder, you know is like the holy grail of birding, one of the only fishing owls in the world, a big brown furry thing that looks a bit like the Cheshire cat, I always think, in Alice in Wonderland. Okay, but why is it really a must-go-to? Because it, one, one of the reasons is it's a UNESCO World Heritage Site. It's steeped in history. 
Why is it steeped in history? Because the ruins show, forget Great Zimbabwe for a moment, the ruins at Mapungubwe show that the place was occupied, I don't know, approximately AD 850. That's quite a few hundred years ago. In fact, it's two centuries before Great Zimbabwe, which is interesting to know. Um, Mapungubwe, the ruins, the archaeologists have been able to show us, it was a very, very powerful state. It was trading with Arabia, China and India. How? By via the East African ports. And several archaeological treasures have been found there. And I'm sure most of you are acquainted or you've seen on screen or on your laptop or your phone, that little golden rhinoceros. There's a golden rhinoceros, gold foil rhinoceros they found there. It's now actually at Pretoria uh, University with the other, uh, some of the other archaeological finds from there. So, so interesting to go there. And what I thought when I went there, it, it's got that atmosphere that these, some of these very, very old places do. I thought about Machu Picchu in Peru when I was there. There's a spirit to the place. I thought about Masada in Israel. When I first went to Masada in Israel, it's many, many moons ago now, you know, it was that fort held by the rebels on top of this huge plateau overlooking the Judean desert and the Dead Sea. And these Jews held out against the Roman Empire, the might of the Roman Empire, for a very, very a long time. As I say, when I first went there, there was no cable car. There's a, a cable car now that whizzes you up in about three or four minutes. But in those days, you had to climb to the top, and it was very, very hot. But when you got, get to the top there, there's that spirit. What happened to those rebels is their leader said, rather than be taken by the Romans, I want you to kill yourselves. So in fact, there was a mass suicide on top of that plateau. And when you get there, the sort of desert wind is whistling around you and you're standing on that rock and you can see the sea and the desert stretches out. There's, there's a, a, a kind of palpable feeling of place and spirit. I don't know. Call it, call it what you will. If you've been there, you'll know exactly what I mean. Other places in the world, too, that have that spirit, that have that feeling of something greater uh, than ourselves. Mapungubwe, be sure to take the museum tour. There's an excellent museum there. You can take a tour and be sure to do the heritage tour. I think it costs about 60 rand or something. Very, very affordable. A guide will take you on a heritage tour through the ruins. And one of the places I remember you visit is this very elite graveyard at the top of Mapungubwe Hill, uh, where you can view the natural amphitheatre and, and the whole, well, the entire spectrum of the region. So you can walk upon territory that our ancestors walked upon. Now, of course, roamed by four of the 
Big Five. And of course you can visit the confluence of the Shashe and Limpopo rivers. What's special about that? It's where three countries meet. It's one of the places in the world where you can stand and have, we, we don't have three feet, but you could, if you went down your hands and knees, you could be in three countries, uh, Botswana and Zimbabwe and South Africa, and be sure to take a sunset or a, a game, a night drive, because you will see stuff that you won't be able to see uh, probably in the daytime. Another lovely thing to do is a guided walk. It's just eight people, and you'll be you'll be taken you'll be taken along, shown all sorts of things. Look at sedan car. You you can take a sedan car. It's not a problem, but. If you've got a high-clearance car, it really is much better if you've got an SOV or one of these great gas guzzlers we see roaming about the streets of Johannesburg. So there you are. That's two national parks for you. Uh, Makala, you may not have been to. Mapungubwe, you must go to. From the highest mountains to the bluest seas, the driest deserts to the icy poles, Kate Turkington has traveled there. And now she's inviting you to travel with her through your radio. Travels with Kate is proudly brought to you with the compliments of Cape Union Mart. Kindle your spirit of adventure. The adventure starts here. Only on 101.9 High FM. 101.9 Kate Turkington Travels with Kate. I'm going to very quickly take you not to another national park. I'm going to take you where? To Las Vegas. Las Vegas. (laughs) It's fun. It's fabulous. It's frenetic. It's vibrant. It's vulgar. It's totally over the top. It's lavish. It's lush. It's luxurious. It's awesome. It's outrageously over the top and in your face. It, it really is. I've only been there once. I, I'd go back. I really would go back because it's just, you don't go there for the scenery, although there are some nice natural parks round about. You don't go really for the scenery or the nature, certainly not for tranquility. You go for the buzz, the beat, the excitement. It's like being on a roller coaster being in uh, Las Vegas, a bit like being in Tokyo. The It never stops. It never stops. And it's certainly come a long way since those Spanish explorers, I think I think the early 1800s I'm right in saying, they called it in Spanish Las Vegas, the meadows. So today, well, of course it's the entertainment and the gambling epicenter of America and millions, millions of tourists flock to uh, everywhere, every year. But listen, you only live once. I think put Las Vegas on your bucket list and let the good times uh, roll. Where to stay? Well, you can go superstar fabulous and steep yourself in glamour somewhere like Planet Hollywood. I stayed at the time at Caesar's Palace. I mean, <laughs> I mean, there were there were phony Romans everywhere in togas and gold sandals and busty blondes and absolutely 
absolutely outrageous. And then I, visit, I visited one that was all done up like an Egyptian palace. So you had uh, the hostesses and the staff all dressed as ancient Egyptians. And there was a Cleopatra's barge that actually rocked uh, on, on an, uh, a lake. So you can sleep in a pyramid uh, if you choose. Good tip. Try to go midweek because they're always excellent, excellent deals uh, midweek and it's always much, much cheaper. And just a warning, as I found out, and this doesn't only happen in Las Vegas, of course, you go into these hotels and the lobbies, oh my word, the lobbies are drop-dead gorgeous. They're dripping with opulence, they're dripping with, they are absolutely over-the-top and gorgeous. And then... To go to your room, you you can't get your room in any of those hotels in Las Vegas without going past a bank of slot machines. So the 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 uh, motive or the urge or the the desire to just spin a wheel is is there tempting you. But when you go to your room in one of these large opulent hotels, they're usually like little rabbit warrants, the little tiny rooms with little tiny bathrooms, because all the money is spent luring you in through the uh, through the lobbies. But there's lots of there's lots of other things to do. You can go to Madame Tussauds, you know Madame Tussauds in London in London, the Waxworks, where you can uh, have your photo taken next to the Queen or Princess Di or Meghan Markle or Johnny Depp or whoever flavour of the month is. That's a good thing to do. There's a wonderful, if you're a motorhead, there's a great collection of classic cars at the link there. You can go to the Mob Museum, find out all about American gangsters if you're a uh, a Sopranos fan. If you're an Elvis fan, I mean, who isn't? Uh, there's an Elvis experience. You can go to the planetarium. This is really worth doing. The planetarium and observatory to see stars. Why? Because remember, Las Vegas is in the middle of the Nevada desert. So the stars at night in the desert. Okay. Uh, you won't see them in Las Vegas because there's too many lights and all the glitter and glitz that's going on. But in the planetarium, you'll see them. Or if you hire a car and just drive out into the desert, you'll see lovely, lovely stars. And there are also some very good nature reserves round and about. So all kinds of things to do. You can see a show. I think David Copperfield, the magician, has been going there for decades and the latest I think Adele is there at the moment go and see a show again you've got to book up quite well in advance and if you're shopping well, well of course you could always buy yourself a Ferrari or a diamond uh, necklace but if you're counting pennies as most of us are there are great outlet malls there's great bargains there and of course finally you can get married you can get married. There's so many wedding destinations. You can have an Elvis wedding. You can have an Eiffel Tower wedding. You can have a little chapel on the uh, hill wedding. And the good thing is, if you get married and you suddenly realised you made a terrible mistake, you can hurry off to the nearby Nevada Divorce Centre and you can get a divorce for $200. So... 
There you go. <laughs> okay, back in just a while. From the highest mountains to the bluest seas, the driest deserts to the icy poles, Kate Turkington has traveled there. And now she's inviting you to travel with her through your radio. Travels with Kate is proudly brought to you with the compliments of Cape Union Mart. Kindle your spirit of adventure. The adventure starts here, only on 101.9 High FM. 101.9 Kai FM, and this is the part of the program, as you know, where we talk about books, books of all kind, books for armchair traveling, books for when you're stuck at a dentist, books for whenever. And today it's so special. I've got somebody with us who writes about all sorts of things, but she writes about change, basically. She writes about change in cities, in countries, in landscapes, in morals, in values, and our own ideas of ourselves. She's a former congressional correspondent for the New Republic. Her essays, long-form journalism, have been published, oh my word, everywhere, New York Times, Washington Post, Guardian in the UK. She, she actually was raised in in the USA, but she now lives in Johannesburg. Who is she? It's Eve Fairbanks. And she's talking to me today about her new, very, very highly praised book, The Inheritors. It's published by Jonathan. It's published by Jonathan Ball. Sorry, that was a bit of a glitch because the power went <laughs> off and we were we were in the dark and everybody listening knows what knows what uh, that's like. So first of all, your your book is called The Inheritor's Eve, but you subtitle it An Intimate Portrait of a Brave and Bewildered Nation. Can can you talk us through that? An intimate portrait. Yeah, so <clears throat> The book is, in a way, kind of a travel uh, through South Africa. It's a it's a kind of journey through both space and history, beginning around really around 1970 through today. But the intimate part is that I'm a journalist. I, I worked for several years in Washington D.C. covering, interviewing, you know, John McCain and your Barack Obama, and I decided that for this book and in general for the work that I do, I wanted to interview like quote unquote ordinary people. So yeah. I don't love that term, but it's it's a term of art in, in journalism, but just just people who live kind of regular lives in different neighborhoods, maybe similar, some of them to to people who are listening, but interview them as if they were oh Ramaposa or or Malema or um or Helen Zilla, or, you know, give them that depth of treatment that we normally give types of celebrities. So that's the kind of intimate part. It's these, it's three, three main people that the book follows as they're, in two of their cases, teenagers in the 1980s. Um, one, Dipuo, was an anti-apartheid activist, real kind of Activist in Soweto, another was one of the last men, white men drafted to fight in the army before the change of regime, and then Dipo's daughter, as they're kind of having one idea of the country that they're going to live in, um, 
when they're teens and 80s, then another idea in the 90s, and then coming to terms with yet another idea, which we're all kind of coming to terms with now, which is a sort of third country, the real aftermath, not the the uh, not the utopian hope, <laughs> the miracle of 1994, not the not the prior regime, but something really really different. And just Eve, tell us about these people. Describe these four people to us. I mean, when you read the book, you're you're really get into their lives, and you're very touched, and you're drawn into some very poignant moments. You really feel you've been living with these people. But you tell us, you tell us, give us a brief snapshot of who they are. Yeah, so Dipulo was born to to a domestic worker, a single mother. She was born in Meadowlands, which is um, in the north of Soweto, <clears throat> and really a, um, a a dreamy kind of aspirational, very unusual young woman. But then growing up in this very constricted environment, one of the things that she told me early on about herself, I, I met her not initially intending to to write a long story about her, but one of the things she told me about herself was how much she loved Danielle Steele novels when she was really young, which I just think is one of these little details that often doesn't make it into, I don't know, museum exhibits about South Africa, or but it was interesting to me the way she got a hold of these, these Danielle Steele love novels and what she, that she saw herself in them in some way and her hopes and... Uh, and then she became involved in the anti-apartheid kind of somewhat disorganized and very organic protest movements that were happening in the 80s when there were a lot of main ANSI leaders had already been exiled or imprisoned. And so it was really young people. She was 14, mm-hmm. 15 mm-hmm. when she dropped out of school like many or she left school like many did in Soweto in 1986 and became a leader, you know, at an age that would seem extraordinary to a lot of us who were still, you know, sitting, sitting in, uh, in standard eight or whatever, that she became kind of a street leader of these protests. Um, then when she was 20 in 1992, on her 20th birthday, she gave birth to her first and only daughter, Malaika, who then became part of this generation we sometimes call the born freeze. Um, and, What's really interesting to me, the uh, they have an incredibly, incredibly close relationship. I mean, they're relatively close in age, Deepu and her daughter Malaika, but they also have this very intimate love that I, I think a lot of people who've read the book really relate to that mother-daughter mm-hmm. story mm-hmm. within mm-hmm. this broader mm-hmm. national story. But there were also these questions of, um, for Dipuo, she lost, she felt she lost her childhood. And that in some way she wanted so badly and fiercely for Malaika to have a certain type of childhood and almost to be apart from politics and, and not have certain types of suffering. And she put a lot of pressure on Malaika to, to have a youth that would in some way redeem the fact that the, that Dipuo, her mother, had lost her youth, mm. which to me was like, I don't know, in terms of my relationship with my mom, I'm, we're Jewish. I was a very, very involved Jewish mother. Um, it was just so resonant. Uh, the third figure interacts with their story briefly in a, in a kind of locational way, which readers can learn about. But he grew up on a farm very near the 
edge of what's the Botswana border far north, um, a cattle farm, traditional Afrikaans community. And he always dreamed in kind of a, originally a little boy way of being a soldier, being a war hero, mm-hmm. being a, a kind of, um, you know, general or reconnaissance officer. And he then fulfilled that, but but later really had to grapple with the fact that with coming to terms with the way some of what he was trained to do, some of what he had been proud of doing, some of what had a lot of meaning for him as a teenager and a young man turned out to be really morally tainted um, in ways that he had also been kind of partially prevented from knowing as a teenager. It was a mystery that in that farm community, he really wasn't taught a lot of complexity to the story. So you see all of these people both moving forward in time, but also reconsidering aspects of their their childhoods, their childhoods in apartheid South Africa, their early lives that they're starting to get more context for. So they're kind of traveling in both directions in, in a way. And Eve, what, what, I mean, I'm asking that without giving away the book, How, what yeah. conclusions did you draw from following the lives of these four people? Very touching stories, very riveting stories. I mean, at times the book does read like fiction, I must tell you. Not in any pejorative way, but because one becomes very close to the characters. What conclusions, if any, did you draw from talking to and entering the lives for so long of these four people? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, I was born in America, raised in America, and one thing I think both America and South Africa share in particular is a feeling like we kind of know our history or that the, these are countries where history was told on a global stage. You know, a lot of other people in other countries know the outlines of, of these kind of both heroic and tragic sides of, of our national stories. There, there's a real storyline. And mm-hmm. over the, the years that I spent, many years traveling to these people's parents' houses where they grew up, et cetera, I, I came to realize how many people's own lives don't fit easily within that narrative, within that storyline. And that in a way, the fact that we think we're inundated in history in these societies that we know, you know, we know our history leads us to push aside a lot of history. So there's a lot that's forgotten and a lot that's mm-hmm. kind of pushed aside, a lot of different types of stories, leading people to feel like they just don't really have room in the country, room in the country storyline, room to, to take part in it. So... I think, you know, some people asked, well, or I had, I had a couple of friends say, why, I'm South African, why should I read a book of South Africa that has a historical element to it of South African stories? I think firstly, hopefully it's a really beautiful read. That was my hope that it does have a kind of poetic feel, reading like fiction, gripping in that way. But I also think, I'm really seeing as people start to read it that it, it can give a kind of scaffolding or a framework for some people to think back on their own stories and some of the things that they've almost been forced to forget, types of relationships they had, types of hopes they had when they were 
children, hopes they had for their children and their country. Exactly. And and I I wonder, it's a bit of a follow-on to what you're saying. Is it possible to generalise from the experiences of these four people some kind of pattern for the future or even what's happening now in South Africa? Well, I'll say something that maybe some people wouldn't entirely want to hear, but I think it's really worth thinking about. So all of these people really grapple with disappointment and frustration, which are, I think, feelings that feel very familiar to probably a lot of listeners right now. But just a a sense of the hopes that they all had uh, in the early 90s and and then just a real sense of disappointment and frustration. I, I did a talk, an event in Johannesburg. We did a book launch and somebody said, raised their hand and said, you know, I have the feeling when I finished your book, they had already read the book, that that we're destined for mediocrity as a country because we cannot, you know, people seem to be so struggling in their own lives to really achieve the type of transcendent personal story, mm-hmm. overcoming, you know, I left the township and, and now I'm really happy and everything I did was ethical, but I'm... But I'm, but I'm well enough off to, you know, send my kids to great colleges. There, there aren't a lot of those straightforward stories. And, and I responded. I said, I really think mediocrity would be okay at the moment. <laughs> like that there, it strikes me as a country, South Africa. And this is also what people over time revealed to me that's, that's kind of hung on a rack, stretched on a rack between two options. One is to be a miracle and having so much potential, fantastic. You know, people sometimes say, God, this country has so much potential. It could be world-class. It could be a world leader or to be a total failure, breaking down a tragedy. And I think, I think in these people's lives, we see that they come to a kind of, in some cases, a sort of contentment or an acceptance with a mixed Mm -hmm. reality. Mm -hmm. Some things are going well, some things aren't going well, some things are getting better, some are getting worse, and I feel that that's a, a point at which maybe it might be healthy for this society to arrive at a, a little bit more um, long-term and tempered expectation. I th- I, yes, I think you're absolutely right. I often say to people, well not often, but I do say to people, you know, when you get old, people actually do listen to you, you do have a certain amount of wisdom. (laughs) You know, I say to people, South African democracy is still what? Do the math. Since 1994, it's, it's not yet 30 years old. I mean, what did you know? What did we know when we were 30? Not very much. Uh, I may say, speaking, speaking perhaps in uh, general. I mean, look at the UK, look at England. It's had democracy for how many years? Hundreds of years. And for goodness sake, Scotland's still trying to break away. Northern Ireland <laughs> wants to stay. I mean, it, it, it's as you say, I think we were so hopeful. We so wanted the miracle. We 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 put our realism aside, and I think that's what's kicking in now. And I think there are certainly pockets of hope. 
and and I have great faith in the the young too. I really do. I think the people growing up now. Uh, as long as they don't take on the mantle of corruption as the given norm, I think there's tremendous hope for South Africa. And you know, you know yourself, you travel as I do. When you travel, and comparisons are odious, I admit that. But when you travel, particularly around <laughs> Africa, and you come back to South Africa, when I touch down at oh, Tampa, I always think, oh wow, thank goodness I'm, thank goodness I'm, I'm home. I have to ask you, Eve. Do you think that there's a good or a bad ending? Uh, this is an impossible question, of course. That's why I'm asking you: Are we all going to live happily ever after, or are we going to melt into a puddle of butter like the the witch in Somewhere Over the Rainbow, <laughs> the Wizard of Oz? It's Your personal view. There's a, there's somebody in the book who asks that explicit yeah. question and a chapter that kind of weighs that question. I, I don't think, uh, I don't think either way, I, I don't think, I don't think either. We, I think we might get a little soft, you know, like when you leave butter, but and it's not in the sun, but it's sort of, in, you yeah, know, it's a warm day, <laughs> but it's, but it's still holding a structure. Um, and, you know, one, one thing I will say is, um, I I sometimes think, you know, there there's a little bit of a a trap or people get a little trapped or hung up on if you say, look, you know, we're going to be struggling for quite a while, so we we need to think in the long term what are our long-term hopes, you know, mm. this country in 2 years is not going to be radically radically transfigured. Um that you're kind of revealing that you're accepting less for Africa or less for an African country. You know, why can't this country be like Norway? You know, it's, it's, it's sort of um, prejudicial yes. to, to how I, but, but I think, I think, you know, my American background is a little interesting when I think about that question, because I feel we're in the U S in a similar mode where there's a, an idealism which can be great and very ennobling. But I talk often to friends of mine who say, you know, I just can't understand why we can't all agree and all, you know, move move forward very rapidly in this exact direction. And, and I say, you know, how realistic is it that, that 330 million people would all agree, right? You know, does your, you have like six people in your family and do you have easy thanks, you know, Thanksgiving meals? No. Um, and... And there's a way in which kind of staying benchmarked to an ideal makes one uncreative. And and it's more difficult to think of a range of possibilities for fixes, for for new new directions when you're you're very kind of captivated by by a vision of a kind of idealized form of the country. So I think it's really something to get away from and and, and these should talk a lot about that in the, in I, I, I think, a didactic way <laughs> I, I think too i mean i grew up in world war ii in london 
Um, mm. And even though it was very little, I remember the Blitz. And there was, that was when the German bombs rained down on everywhere, from Belfast to Coventry to London. And there was something called the Blitz spirit, the Blitz mentality, mm. which meant you accepted what was happening and you moved on and you looked to the future because it had to be a future. You had to believe in a future. And I think that's unknowingly, I think that's what a lot of South Africans have. Let's carry on. Things will get better. What can we do, each of us, in our little way to make things better? Absolutely. I I was telling my mother that 10 days, so we did the, the launch of this book in Cape Town and Johannesburg and and about a week beforehand, I had some terrible GI bug, and I went to my GP, and I said, um, you know, I really, I have, I need you to help sort me out because I have these book launches. I need to sit for an hour and a half. Um, and by the by the way, I, you know, my launch is here in Johannesburg. You're welcome to come. I never expected my GP to show up without reminder at my book launch, but he was there. And it was so remarkable to me. I think there are a lot of countries in in Europe and, and even in, you know, parts of the U.S. where that would never happen. But exactly. there's a type of a type of openness, a type of support for each other, a type of longing to make links across different types of divides or, or, or groupings that that people in this country really have. It's remarkable to me. I, I I totally agree. I was thinking of Ubuntu. It's such an overworked uh, phrase, but it is so, 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 so true. And just as a kind of final thing, I know how much you travel and how much you have traveled. Do you have a favorite destination? I We, we t- talked a tiny bit about it before we began recording. I love Kenya. I think it's... I, I, I wish... Even more South Africans traveled extensively through Africa because I think you see a lot of different possibilities. And I spent a lot of time in Kenya and I, I saw the type of, um, I don't know, vision for the future, anticipation of the future, excitement for it that, that people had, even though some of the infrastructural issues they were dealing with um, and I don't want to romanticize that at all. It wasn't that way, but we're, we're more stark than we have here. I, I, was, I was in Kenya, actually, just before Christmas, just after uh, the new president had been elected, and there was quite a lot of cynicism, you know, among the ordinary people, very like here, but there was a lot of hope. Too. And of course, I have to raise the flag for South Africa, and you know this. We have a much freer press in South yeah. Africa than in Kenya, and I always say that all the time, that our democracy will keep going while we have a free press that we do fight for, mm-hmm. uh, as you know. So Kenya, is there any place you wouldn't go back to? <laughs> is there any place I would not go back to? I would not go back. I probably will have to for work. I would not go back to San Francisco. I feel I I think it's the poor man's Cape Town in terms of the the landscape and uh, and the the sort of tech culture. You know, whatever bohemian spirit was in San Francisco is it's a it's a reminder of how quickly 
a vibe and the type types of communities can be killed if if they're not preserved if if that if people aren't conscious of that it's just now kind of like a giant Apple and Amazon parking lot. I would not go back. So you won't go to San Francisco and wear flowers in your hair. Not, nope. <laughs> <laughs> Never again. Eve, thank you so much. Uh, it's been such a pleasure talking to you. I can really recommend the book, The Inheritors. It's published by Jonathan Ball by Eve. Fairbanks, and you will find echoes, you will, you'll find echoes of your own stories, whoever you may be, at whatever age you are, and also will make you think about South Africa and its future. Well, thanks for being with me. It was great having you. Lots of love, lots of life. Travel safely, look after yourselves, and please look after each other too.